Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Martin Gunter, and I'm a family pastor here at Southland. And this morning, I get the privilege to join in with Pastor Lauren's series that he just started this summer called Life Illustrated. And with that, uh, we are going to jump into some parables and some illustrations out of Scripture. But before we do that, I have a quick question for you. And it's a very simple question, and it is, are you ready? And I know you might say, are you ready for what? Is something going to jump at me in the next minute or so? No, it's not that kind of question. But I just want to plant a seed to see, are you ready? Because I don't know about you, but I will sometimes think of my past and think, man, was I really ready for the responsibility of kids? Was I ready to get married? And yesterday, actually, as I was prepping the message, and I kind of felt in my heart, I'm like, man, am I actually ready for this message tomorrow I need to preach? And uh, my wife came up, and she saw this look of, uh, probably horror on my face, and she says, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm just not sure if I'm ready. And like a good spouse, my wife is amazing. She came to me, she comforted me, and she says, you know what? The Holy Spirit's going to equip you. God's got this, even if you don't have it. I'm like, oh, thanks, honey. And then she looks at me and she says, unless. I'm like, what do you mean unless? And she says, unless God's going to test you, and then you're going to bomb tomorrow. And I'm like, Thanks, honey. I appreciate that. So we'll see how this message goes today. If God's testing me or the Holy Spirit is helping me in this. So I just appreciate my wife in that. But anyways, illustrations and parables this summer. Uh, when I heard Pastor Lauren's going to go through this, um, I actually jumped at it a little bit and I said, I want to do one message too because I love parables and I love illustrations in Scripture because I'm a simple person and when I read the parables, it is very simple, and the truths are very simple to grasp. And actually, one of my favorite illustrations, uh, it's not a parable, but it's an illustration that Jesus uses, is in Matthew 7. And in Matthew 7, we see Jesus saying, you hypocrites. Isn't that a great way to introduce a message or introduce or start a talk, right? Is to yell at people, you hypocrites. I can only imagine next time Pastor Stephen comes up and starts the message here and points, you hypocrites. And we'll all listen and see what's going on, right? But Jesus says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And I love this illustration, because I can only imagine Jesus walking on, uh, on the mountaintop there, doing the Sermon on the Mount, looking down, finding a log, putting it to his eye, and says, here, let me help you with that speck in your own eye, and let's get it out. And I think even children will be able to see this, right, and go, that's not a good idea. First take care of that log, and then you can help me with a splinter of my own eye. And I love the simplicity of the illustrations that Jesus uses in the Gospels and all over Scripture we see this, and it makes the Word become alive. And that's why I'm excited going into the parables uh, for this summer. And on this, I just want to encourage families here very, very quickly with something. Sometimes when we do family devotions, we might feel like, man, where do I go from here with my kids? What am I going to teach them today? And sometimes the kids are going to get rowdy, right? And they don't want to sit still, and what revelation can I give them now? But you know what? Most of the time, we can just open the Gospels. We can go to one of the 30 parables that's out there, open it up, and read it to our kids. 
And I think you'll be amazed how our kids grasp on the simple truths that are in there and how that plants seeds into their hearts for the future. So that's a great place I want to encourage you. When you just feel stuck and you don't know where to go in your spiritual walk, open to one of the parables in the Gospels and read that and see how God's going to do it. Because even though they seem very familiar, I love how God's Word is alive, right? And it works in our hearts and we see different perspectives. And that's why I love when Pastor Lauren started the series, I was excited to see different perspectives I have never seen. And even this morning, uh, Keres was leading the pre-service prayer here, and when she was talking about the parable I was going to talk to today, she said something I didn't see. And when she said that, like, oh man, I should jog that down, that's pretty cool. And I love it again that God works through this even in very, very familiar parables. So let's get started. Last week, Pastor Lauren took us through Luke 7, and this morning I'll be moving us to Luke 10, and we're going to talk about the parable of a Good Samaritan. And the parable of a Good Samaritan only happened once in the book of Luke, and it's in chapters 10, 25 through 37. Now, we're first going to read verses 25 through 29 first, because this gives us the reason why Jesus told the parable. Because up to this point, we don't know why it's being told even, right? So, we're going to, if you have your Bibles here, you can join me in Luke 10. And if not, no worries, we'll have a scripture for you uh, on the PowerPoints there. But let's start unpacking these. So verse 25 in Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And just a quick heads up, I'm going to jump around a few scriptures. I'm going to pause a little bit in this first section, but I promise after that I won't jump around as much. But yeah, so he's asking, how shall I inherit eternal life? Now, this is interesting because Jesus got asked this about 19 times in the Gospels. So this was a very common question that uh, the Jews or people had when they asked Jesus this. So, and he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Isn't it interesting that Jesus asked the lawyer what you interpret from it? And why is that? It's because the lawyer is an expert in the law, as some translations say it. He studied this. He should know how to inherit eternal life. And let's see now how he answered this. And uh, verse 27, he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Go do this, and you will live. Phew! I can only imagine, right? Like, I passed the exam. Jesus asked a question, and I got it right. And he must have felt pretty good with that. And you know what? The, uh, the lawyer got this from two different passages in the Old Testament. The first one is Deuteronomy 6.5, where it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And Leviticus 19.18, that says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So that's where the lawyer got it, and he answered correctly. Now, this could have been the end of the story, but there's a but. There always has to be a but. And, uh, but he, desiring, in verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, this was curious when I read through this. I'm like, why would he ask this question, who is my neighbor? I mean, don't we know who our neighbors are? right? The people living next to us. And surely as he studied the law, he should know who our neighbor is. So here's a thing, though, and it's worth noting, the Jews back in the day only viewed their neighbor as their fellow Israelite. They didn't see anybody else past that being their neighbor. And you know what? 
they also get that from Leviticus 19.18, which we just read earlier. And look at this verse again. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. And there it is. You shall not bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. So then the Jews interpreted that as my neighbor is simply the people who I am with, my fellow Israelites, and anybody else is not my neighbor. So I wonder if a lawyer would not have known this, right? But verse 29 says, desiring to justify himself. So he was looking for the easy way out, just like many of us today too, right? We want to see if there's another way of coming at this. And I wonder too, maybe, did he hear of Jesus' teachings up to this point? Because up to this point, Jesus had a very contradictory message towards this. And we can read this in Matthew 5. And I'll read you this next part. You have heard what is said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that's kind of a norm. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of a Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward is it to you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So, I can't be 100% sure on the motive of a lawyer of why he was asking this, and that's okay, because even though I don't know, Jesus knew, right? And Jesus was gonna take us through these next parts. And I love how Jesus now is not only gonna simply answer the question of who is my neighbor, but Jesus is about to do a great miracle. And this is something that I haven't noticed before, and I don't know if you guys will notice this miracle as well, but he is going to redeem an entire nation in the process of telling this parable. So, and isn't this true too, that God wants to have an intimate relationship with all of us, right? God is in the business of redeeming us, and he wants to redeem every single person here. So I love that Jesus' heart that he wants to redeem a nation as well in this. So, and I love how the psalmist also says this, it says, let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So let's see how Jesus goes on now. He's going to answer the question um, about, uh, about who is my neighbor, but also redeem the nation. And but before we get to that, I do want to talk about the Samaritans because this is what Jesus is going to redeem. Because see, back then, the Samaritans were not liked by the Jews, okay? They were on opposite uh, ends. Uh, they were, to say they were merely enemies is a severe understatement. This wasn't a feud of, about Coke versus Pepsi, although Coke is vastly superior to Pepsi. And today, when we say the Good Samaritan, we all know that's a good person, right? If I say there's a Good Samaritan or there's a Samaritan, we'll all go, yes, that guy I want in my corner. That is the man that's a good man. I can't wait to travel through Samaria, go visit some Samaritans, because they really know how to take care of people around them. And you know what? We have that viewpoint today, but that's not the viewpoint back in Jesus' time, right? And it's not even just us for Christians who have this viewpoint, but governments and non-Christian agencies also have this viewpoint. And I'll show you guys, I love this. In Canada, we have a law called the Good Samaritan Law. I don't know if you guys knew this or not, this is news to me, but it's in Canada, the States, Australia, and Europe, and I'll read you exactly what it says. You can go home and Google this. But it says, 
where's my spot? It's the legal protection to people who give reasonable assistance to those who are or whom believe to be injured or ill, in peril or otherwise incapacitated. The protection is intended to reduce bystanders' hesitation to assist for fear of being sued or persecuted, unintentionally injured, or wrongful death. Which is a, quite a mouthful, right? And I don't get all that legal jargon myself. So for any kids in here or people of my maturity, I looked at comic books and I found four superheroes of a name Samaritan, okay? And they're all good guys. So Samaritans are good people in today's standard, right? And the reason for this is because Jesus redeemed the whole nation in this parable. And what an incredible thing, because Jesus is doing so much more than just simply answering a question. So, let's get back to it now a little bit. Um, but again, oh, sorry, huh, we can't get back yet. I am getting ahead of myself, sorry. Before we get back to it, to give you another illustration, uh, we see in John 8, uh, when Jews were talking to Jesus, and FYI, again, the Jews were not happy with Jesus. And they, they said this to him in John 8, 48, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Ouch. I mean, that's not just saying that you're demon-possessed, but you're a Samaritan. Like, that is how the Jews viewed the Samaritans, as low, as being possessed, and as having nothing. So, there's a long history between the Jews and the Samaritans, and kind of uh, uh, the stuff that happened between them. Now, the Samaritans also believed in God. And this is a quick history on the Samaritans because I think it's important for us to know where they come from. They were a racially mixed group of where the Jews and the Gentiles got married together, and that's where the Samaritans came to be. Now, they also believed in the Bible, but they only believed in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. So they read Genesis, um, no, I lost my Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And now they believed in those, but they rejected everything else. And isn't this true for us today as well? When somebody is living a very contradictory life to us or when somebody is very opposite to us, we can tolerate that, right? Because they're so opposite. But when somebody believes most of the stuff we believe in and they know it, but they willfully reject parts of it, well, it kind of makes it harder to love those people, right? Because they're willfully rejecting parts. And that's how the Jews felt about the Samaritans. Now, another piece of their history that I found kind of funny, and I know I shouldn't, but I just found, I chuckled when I read this. Um, when the Jews came out of exile from Babylon in roughly 500 BC, they were gonna rebuild their temples. And the Samaritans came along and said, hey, we will help you rebuild your temples. But the Jews said, no thank you, because we don't believe the same thing, and the way we worship, the way we go by in the temple is very different from how you do it. So we will do it ourselves. Thanks, but no thanks. The Samaritans were not good losers, okay? They did not take this well. Actually, what they did is, to be spiteful a little bit, they took pig heads, and they took these pig heads and they would throw them on the construction site of where the Jews were building their temple. And I can only imagine the frustration on the poor Jews. I can just see the Jews say, hey, Larry, pass me that two by four, let's start building. No, there's a pighead coming in, and there's pigheads again. So now it's not just simply for the Jews to go and clean up the pigheads. No, they had to go and defile themselves because the law shows they cannot touch dead animals. So the poor Jews now, trying to rebuild their temple, had to go down, 
pick up the dead pig heads, remove them, defiling themselves, come back, cleanse themselves, and then cleanse the area where the pig head was. So you can see, this wasn't merely building the temple again, they had a lot of extra work. And I can just see the Samaritan, Samaritans chuckling on the side as they're just cleaning everything up and say, oh, they're good, more pig heads, and there they go. It's even noted in Ezra 4 that they can see there was delayed in building the temple again, which they think relates back to how the Samaritans did this. So even though today we see the Samaritans as good, in Jesus' time, not so much. But the Jews were not innocent either. Uh, because of the hatred of the Samaritans, they were constantly at war, they t attacked one another, and the Jews also destroyed some temples uh, from the Samaritans. But that's enough history. Let's get back into uh, the Word, and now I see how Jesus uh, answers the question of, who is my neighbor? So Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, it's also worth noting here, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 30 miles. So it's quite a ways to go. And they say it had about a thousand yard decline from one area to the other area. So it's quite the decline you had to go by. And it was known for the robbers who were there. So when Jesus was telling the story, people knew the road very, very well. So he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down to the road. And when he saw him, he passed to the other side. So likewise, a Levite. And when he came to the same place and saw him, he passed to the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell amongst the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. I just had a chuckle too. Isn't it funny the lawyer couldn't even say the Samaritan, but he had to say the one who showed him mercy? And again, it shows like they didn't even want to say the name Samaritan, right? And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So let's unpack this a little bit. There's so much we can take out of this. First off, a priest came by, right? And the priest sawing the man half dead pass on the other side. Now, I wonder when Jesus was telling the parable, I wonder if a lawyer felt a little bit of reassurance. Oh, if a priest passed him by, that's good. That means I don't have to stop by either, right? Because priests back then were wealthy. And in today's standards, a priest would be like a, like a minister or an upper-class businessman. That would be kind of a relation in today. So if we see a minister or an upper-class business person pass around an opportunity to do some good, we kind of feel justified too, right? Because they are the ones who are supposed to lead the way and help others. And if they don't do it, why should I do it? And isn't the flip also true? When we see a minister or a pastor in the church go see a movie in the movie theaters, inside we go, oh, if they see a movie, I can watch free movies. And if they watch something PG, I can go PG-13, ooh, you know? And that's how we feel inside. We justify so quickly on what we can do. And next up, we see a Levite. And a Levite are the ones who help the priests inside the temple. So they were kind of a middle class of today. And 
Again, I wonder how the lawyer felt about this. Now it's not just simply a priest who passes by. I feel justified. I don't have to help. But now a Levite, if the average Joe, you know, the middle-class person doesn't have to help, man, I am onto something here. I am so happy I asked this question, who is my neighbor? But I will take a quick note here. Saying that he's a lawyer, he was an expert in the law. And you remember the story about the pig heads being flown at the poor Jews and have to clean it up and defile themselves? Well, that same law applies to priests and Levites. If they saw a dead body, if they touched it, they would defile themselves. So also the lawyer could have made the argument probably for saying, man, if they touched the body, they would defile themselves, and then they can't do their priestly duties, right? So they were justified in doing that because they will become ceremoniously unclean. But you know what, church? I am so thankful that is not God's heart. Even though we as humans may justify the reasons and justify why I should not help somebody out, it is not our Savior's heart. Because again, Jesus is trying to redeem all of us. So, and even on this too, I love how Jesus comes to the lawyer's level and is very technical in how we talk to him. Talking in terms that the lawyer would understand what's going on. So, I think this next part when Jesus is going to talk now, I think any justification the lawyer had quickly fell away because Jesus went a Samaritan man. And I can only imagine the gasps of the Jews around. Did he say a Samaritan? He used the S word. Quickly, kids, cover your ears. This is not good, right? But Jesus went there. He was going to redeem the nation in this. But when a Samaritan man traveled down the road, and again, Samaritans, they were the lower class. They had the least of ease. But look what the Samaritan man does. And you know what? I count not just one thing he did, but he did nine different things. The Samaritan man came up to him, and you know what? He went to him, number one. Two, he bound up his wounds. Three, he poured on oil and wine on his wounds. Now, back then, too, oil and wine, it signified of how they are going to cleanse the wound, and the wine had antiseptic material, uh, properties in it to help the wound not get infected. Number four, he sat him on his own animal. Number five, he brought him to an inn. Six, and this is something I never noticed either, he took care of him until the next day. I always read the parable, and I thought, oh, he just dropped him off and left. No, no, no. He stayed the night till the next day, taking care of this man. Seven, he took out two denarii. Now, two denarii in today's terms is roughly two days' worth of wages. Uh, but the commentary is very a little bit on this. But they say it's probably about two months' worth of pay at the inn. So two months did the Samaritan pay for this guy to be there. And then he instru gave instruction, take care of him. And lastly, number nine, I'll be back. And whatever you didn't pay, I will pay for you. So this wasn't a quick stop, right? This wasn't the, the Samaritan coming by and quickly like, oh no, there's a guy half dead. Pick up his phone, call 911, no service. Oh no, it's the old days, there's no service. Put his phone down, put the guy in his car, drive him to the hospital, drop him off. No, he took his time. He made sure this guy was taken care of. And you know what? That is something he did because he saw a big need, right? So, 
how do we do this? And what's our next step in this? Who is my neighbor is the the question that Jesus brings up, that that, that the guy brought up. But I love how Jesus then goes and he changes that. And he says, which one of these three proved to be a good neighbor? But in the end of this parable, and this is where I want to spend the rest of our time here, now go and do likewise. Notice it's not a suggestion. Notice it's not just a prompting, but God commands us, now go and do likewise. And this is where I want to ask you the question, are you ready? Are you ready to go and do likewise? And I'll be honest with you uh, for a moment here. When I started preparing for this message and those words, are you ready, came to mind in prayer, I sat there and I could not get over this thought, am I ready to go and do likewise? Because church, I'll be very honest with you. I know I can answer that question very honestly. Too many times in my life have I seen somebody in need and I have just gone by and I justified it in the moment so quickly with I'm in a hurry. I get something else important to do. There's something else that I need to get done. I'll just bypass. Somebody else will help them. Oh, look, they have a cell phone. They'll call somebody. They're fine. And I bypass that. But again, as quickly as I justify, that's not God's heart. And that's not what we're commanded to do. And I think more and more as I've been meditating on this, I fear I am more like the priest and the Levite who simply went around the other side of the road. So, this has been a very convicting message for me to go through. But how can we be ready? How can we be ready as a church to go and do likewise? And hopefully I'll be able to answer this for you. And again, I only have two things for us to go through. I'm going to keep this as simple as possible because I don't think we need something too complex to do this. And you know what? We'll go back to the parable. The first thing that happened when we Samaritans saw him is what? He had compassion on him. And that is where we need to start church. We need to have compassion for our fellow brother and sister. Without compassion, nothing will change. We will simply look the other way or not even notice what's going on, right? So, what is compassion even? Compassion is when we are confronted with love when somebody else is vulnerable or hurting. That's simply what compassion is. When we see a need, when we see a hurt, and we feel something towards that, that is compassion welling up inside of us. And you know, I love how uh, Colossians says we should put on compassion daily. Uh, Colossians 3.12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Or even um, as God called us his children, right? That we are supposed to love one another because Jesus modeled this for us. And again, we can look at, um, let's see here, the next Matthew. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Let me just say this real quick. Compassion is not based on worth, but somebody's need. And I'll repeat that. Compassion is based on need, not worth, right? Because so many times too, again, looking the other way because I'll say, I'll justify through my mind, is this worth my time? Is this person worth helping? And I know this sounds terrible to say it out loud, but that's how our minds start racing, right? Is it worth it for me to do this? Because my schedule is so full. And that's exactly the thing we have to come to. But I want to tell you a quick story. And 
sorry, I love stories, and I'll tell you many stories today, well, only three stories today. But I want to tell you a story of my uh, wife's sister, Kristen. And uh, Kristen is married to Jeremy, and they're actually out this weekend, and they're from the Brandon area. They live about 15, 20 minutes outside Brandon, and they have five beautiful girls. So when you think of it, pray for Jeremy with five girls. He needs every bit of prayer he can get. But at the time when this happened, there was only three girls, uh, Olivia, Adrian, Lexi. And Lexi was a newborn, and living 15, 20 minutes outside of town, I think anybody here who's lived outside town and go buy groceries, you know when you go buy groceries, you go once. You don't go twice. You make sure you have your list and you get everything you need and you come back, right? Why? It's 20 minutes drive to get groceries, right? And you get everything you need. So Kristen had her three girls. They went to Superstore. And this is back in the day before there's such things like click and collect. So she gets to the grocery store and she starts shopping. And wouldn't you know it, I think any parent here can relate, one of the kids are having a tough day. They start getting upset and cranky and starts crying, and crying turns into yelling, and yelling turns into screaming, right? So Kristen is panicking. She's trying to console her girl. She has a newborn, and she's trying to grocery shop, right? And it's just not working out. And at one point, as Kristen tells me the story, she came to, she came to a standstill, and she just prayed, and she said, Lord, please help. You know what happened, church? There was an older lady looking from a distance watching Kristen. Not judgy, not saying, oh, she should have gotten a babysitter. But she walked up to Kristen and had a simple question, can I help you? And Kristen said, no, I'm too prideful, don't help me. She said, yes, please help me. So the old lady took the cart, and she pushed the cart, and she took Kristen's list and helped Kristen load all the groceries. After that, went to the checkout aisle, bagged everything for Kristen, went to her van, and helped her load her van. Isn't that incredible? And when Kristen turned around to say, thank you so much for your help, she was gone. So I'm not sure if she was a ninja, a superhero, or an angel, but either way, Kristen needed a good Samaritan, and God sent somebody her way that made an impact in her life. Now, the other question is, do you think that her girls magically stopped crying during this whole process, and it was just rainbows as she went through grocery shopping? No, girl kept crying the whole time. But this severely impacted Kristen's day. And this is a story where she can go on and say, look what the Lord has done in my life. So, excuses take control but we cannot let excuses take control of what we're commanded to do by Jesus. So church, are we ready to do likewise? And again, it's so easy to go and judge, right? And say, Kristen should have gotten a babysitter or should have asked somebody else to help. But that's not how we're supposed to do. We need to see the need and not count the worth in it. So that's compassion. The last thing I want to talk to today is time. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. And again, when we showed those nine different things the Samaritan did, he took his time. He didn't rush through it. And a verse that's been really uh, on my heart these last couple of weeks is Ephesians 5. And that says, Be very careful in how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish to understand what God's will is. 
I have a very dangerous question I want to ask you on top of are we ready. Sorry, lots of questions. But have you asked the Lord where you're supposed to spend your time? And I'm asking this is a dangerous question because what's God going to tell you? Can I still watch Netflix? Can I still do what I want to do? But you know what, church? Ephesians 5 says here, be very careful how we spend our time. Time is the one finite resource we cannot get more of. We only have so much, and we need to be wise in how we use it. And that's the thing, too. We are so busy. We run at such a, full, uh, such a fast pace. We cannot get everything done in time. And isn't it true? I don't know about you guys, but I looked at my calendar the other day, and I'm like, it's August. What happened to June and July? It felt like it was May yesterday, and we're in August already. Like, time just flew by, right? And sometimes looking back at this, there's projects we do, and we get things done, and we look back, and we say, oh, look at that. Um, my deck railing kind of fell apart this summer, and uh, I'd spent some time fixing it. But I look back, I worked hard, and I sawed the finished thing. I'm like, yes, I accomplished something. It was time well spent. But how much more for when God asks us something to do His will, when God asks us to spend time with His people, is that not time well spent? I have very, a very, very imperfect love when it comes to people, and I'm really working on that. But you know what? When I see somebody, um, a family member or a family friend, interact with my kids, and my kids have some struggles too, and when I see somebody interact with my kids, my imperfect love for that person just blossoms. Like, it explodes because they're taking time to spend with my kid. And I grow in such deep love for that person in that moment. How much more do you think God, when His children are here, and we go out of our way to help one of His children in with struggle, how do you think God's heart feels about that and towards us? And people will always ask, I would love to do God's will, but what is God's will? Well, I can tell you one of them. Now go and do likewise is God's will. It is God's will that we help one another and we edify one another through this. So I told you guys stories, so I'm going to tell you another story. And this story, I'm going to name the person in the story Bob because I don't want to use his real name here because of some legal stuff that happened in here. But uh, I was driving home with Bob um, from Brandon to Steinbach, and Bob drives a truck. And as we're driving, we're right around the Portage area. And Bob is driving, and I can see him point. And he said, that man needs our help. And I look, and I kind of squint, and I see a guy next to the road in a wheelchair trying to change a tire, a flat tire. But nobody stopped to help him. But you know what? Bob saw it. And when Bob saw this, he says, the man needs our help. Now, the Portage Highway, the number one, there's a big ditch between the two highways, right? For safety. So people do not do this. Put the truck in four-wheel drive and drive through the ditch to get to the other side, which Bob did. And he pulls up behind the other guy and he looks at me and he says, let's go. And I'm like stumbling outside of a truck. And we go and Bob grabs the tire iron and he takes it off and he takes the wheel off and we change it. We were faster than a Formula One pit stop. It was absolutely amazing. And I was just kind of shaken of what happened driving through the ditch and doing this. But uh, Bob has a very evangelistic heart. And he starts talking to the guy in the wheelchair. And you know what? Just like Kristen, 
the guy in the wheelchair did something. Do you guys have any guesses what that was? He prayed. But he prayed a very specific prayer. And one, I don't know why he prayed like this. But he said, Lord, I hope somebody can stop by from my local body and come help me. And then when Bob asked him and said, where's your church? What's your local body? He says, oh, it's in Steinbeck. And he says, oh, we're in Steinbeck. Oh, it's Southland. And then Bob starts laughing and he says, I'm from Southland. We're all from Southland. And I'm like, oh Lord, how cool is that? This guy didn't just simply pray, help. He prayed specifically, and God cares about those little details. Lord, help me, but I want help for my local body, for my local church. And you know what? If Bob was in a hurry, we would have missed it. If Bob wasn't looking, if Bob wasn't in tune with the Holy Spirit, we would have simply driven past. Because you know what? It's easy to drive past somebody. It's actually hard to pull over. And Bob did. But after the guy went away, you would think Bob would do the right and legal thing of going to the next intersection and merging down the highway. <laughs> but no. Bob hit four-wheel drive, went through the ditch again, and we're on our way back home. So that's why I'm keeping Bob's name quiet. <laughs> so we need more people like Bob, right, that can help in this. And you know what? Here's a shocker for you guys. Do you think we made good time coming back from Brandon? No, we didn't, okay, because we helped this guy. But it was worth spending the time there. It was worth it to help this man in need and to see this answered prayer. And this is the next thing. How many times do we miss opportunities of answered prayer? Not just for our own lives, but in other people's lives when people are praying, and then there goes the answered prayer right by because we're too busy. We don't take the time to do this. So, and I totally lost my spot where I was, but that's okay. So we can make a substantial impact in our community, people, when all of us have this on our radar, okay? This isn't just simply a few of us looking at this. I would love it if somebody has a flat tire somewhere in town here and 100 people converge the whole highway and to see how we can help them. You know why? Again, what Scripture says, Jesus said, it's because of our love for one another, people will know we're followers of him. But our love will be so evident in the community that we help other people because we are children of God and we follow Jesus, right? And this is where I quickly want to talk to parents. Parents, you know it's caught more than it's taught, right? We can teach our kids this all day long, but if we don't lead by example, they will not follow in this. So I want to encourage you Let's do this with our kids. And with this too, remember your priorities. I know the whole message is basically based off strangers. But remember, our neighbor is everybody. It starts at home. It starts with our families at home that we get to work with, right? It starts with our spouse and our kids, and we move forward from there. And you know what? It goes as far as our families, right? When we go to a family gathering and we get together, and there's some people we do not like, are we like the priest and the Levite? We go to the other side of the room and we avoid them? Or do we go and we meet the need there? So I want to encourage you, do not go to the other side of the road, but meet the need. So kind of in closing here, I want to read you guys one last story. And it's out of a book called Christian Heroes Now and Now and Then. Yes, Then and Now. 
Uh, these book series is actually in a library, and this is something that Pastor Chris Carr recommended to me. And since then, again, my wonderful wife, uh, she didn't just buy one or two of these books, she bought all 54 of them. Um, because we're reading these to our kids, and our kids love it. And my son, we just finished Cory Ten Boom, and there's a scene in there where things are getting really intense, and he couldn't handle it anymore. So he went at nighttime, and he was reading the book, like at midnight, to see what's going to happen next. But um, I want to read a quick excerpt out of here, and hopefully this will kind of just give you guys another example of this. So and it's also to note when this takes place in Amy Carmichael's life, she just lost her dad, okay? It was a cold and dreary day, and Dr. Park, the pastor of a Rosemary Street Presbyterian Church, had just preached a particularly long sermon, and after an hour and a half of sitting in a drafty church, the whole Carmichael family was eager to go home to the warmth of the fire and drawing fireplace. As usual, Amy, Norman, and Ernest strode up front. They were winding their way through the streets of the college gardens when an old beggar woman came staggering out of a side alley. Her clothes were tavered, her feet were wrapped in strips of rags, and they were clogged with mud. Slung across her back was an old coal sack with a bundle of sticks. The old woman was doubled over under the weight of a heavy bundle as the woman stumbled along, and Amy and two of her brothers stopped and looked at her. Despite the father's money woes, the Carmichael children had grown up with much money and been much more money than most people. Yet, they also had been taught to help others regardless whether they are rich or poor. So, with a shrug, the three of them walked up beside the old woman. Norman lifted a bundle of sticks on, her, on his back, and Amy and Ernest took a hold of each of the woman's arms as they walked down beside her. Now, the old beggar woman smiled a toothless smile and pointed towards another alley about half a mile further down the street. The three Carmichael children had expected to help the old woman to a nearby building, but the alley she pointed out was much further away, and they intended to help her. Nonetheless, they would see her safely there. As they made their way along the street, Amy and Ernest, dressed in their best clothes, guided the old woman in tavern rags, while Norman, also in a Sunday vest, followed along with a pile of sticks strung across his back and his top hat. What they haven't figured on was that the pace the old woman was walking, other people on their way home from church would catch up with them. But that is exactly what began to happen. And one by one, church members started to strangle, to stare at a strange sight as they walked by. Amy felt her face getting hotter as each person from church passed them. Especially one woman hurried her children to the other side of the road to avoid the four of them altogether. And embarrassed, Amy and her brothers kept their heads down, not even looking at each other and hoping that no one important came along and saw them. There was a fountain in the center of the road, and trying to take her mind along off away, the beggar woman, Amy studied it closely. It was made of blocks of cut stone and water sprayed from the three spouts in the center. And as she studied it, Amy suddenly stopped. Someone was talking to her. She heard a voice clearly say, Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. The fire will test all sorts of work, and each one is done. If a work which the man has built his foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Amy turned to see who was speaking to her, but there was nobody there. But she heard a voice, plain and clear. Puzzled, she walked with the old woman on her arm. And as she did, something felt very different inside. Amy was no longer embarrassed. In fact, she walked with her head held high for all to see. The trio escorted the old woman to where they, she wanted to go, and they ran to catch up with her mother and the other children finished walking home. After lunch, Amy went to her room. 
She knelt down before her bed, and she knew the words she heard from the fountain were from the Bible. And finally, she looked at her small leather-bound edition, and the words were from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Amy read them again, but what was the meaning to her? Amy had known for as long as she could remember that God loved her, but she began to wonder about how knowing he loved her changed the way she acted each day. And after several hours of praying and thinking, Amy finally decided that she knew the words and the verse meant to her. For one thing, she would no longer waste time on things that weren't important in God's eyes. When all, all the things she'd done in, in her life were finally judged by God, she wanted them to be found worthwhile. She wanted them to be seen in gold, silver, not hay and stubble. For another thing, she would never again worry about what people thought about her. If what she was doing was pleasing to God, that would be enough for her. If other people, even Christians, didn't want to walk beside beggars, that was their business. But Amy would walk with them, and she would walk proudly. I just think, isn't that so appropriate? And Andrea pointed this, this out to me, and I'm like, man, that is where we're at, right, church? It's not just now, it's back then too, but people avoided it. So, is this even in our radar? Are we ready to help one another? And that's the question, church. I'm not doing this to make you feel guilty. I'm just pointing towards Scripture. Now go do and likewise. But I know some of you might come here and you say, I want to help, but I don't know where. I don't see people next to the road. I drive up and down the road and there's nobody there. Where do I help? Well, first off, you can help in your family, right? And if you've done helping in your family, you can look at the church and there's many places you can serve here. But you know what? If you want to serve some more, there's some community organizations that you can also serve in with these families in crisis. Organizations like Safe Family Steinbeck, and they help Christian families find, uh, find families who need help, and they help them stick together. Just last week, a volunteer from Safe Family served a local mom who was gonna lose her children to CFS because of the clutter inside of her home. And a volunteer from Safe Families and a 13-year-old son came alongside the mom, and they decluttered the house and the kids were not apprehended by CFS. What an incredible story. And this is places where you can also volunteer. And if you're interested in that and you need help, come see me. Email me, talk to me, we'll set you up, okay? But I would like to wrap this up. How do we go from here? I know you guys are saying, give me the three points. What are the three things I need to do quickly to do this? I think I'll do you a disservice by giving those to you. And you know what? I have some good news in that. You don't need three points. You need one. Start with prayer. Holy Spirit, where do you want to take mine? What is next for me? How do I grow in compassion? How do I take, use my time wisely?